This week marks the beginning of our four-week series that we're entitling The Spirit and His Gifts. The Spirit and His Gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, we're going to go verse by verse through those three chapters to see if we can't help to get everybody in the room here, if that's possible, on the same page regarding how these things work, how we should think about these things, and and what that means for us as a church. And as you're finding 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, which in order is the seventh book of the New Testament, don't lose your place there, but look very quickly at chapter 7, verse 1. Right here in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says something that in a, in a real sense holds the key for understanding a lot of what he says, pretty much everything he says from that point on in the letter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, The Apostle Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. The Apostle Paul was in the city of Ephesus and he received a letter from the Corinthian church. And we don't have that letter preserved for us today. But if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 7 all the way through 16, you get a pretty good idea of what that letter must have contained. So I'm going to take the next five minutes and I want you to pay very close attention to my version of that letter. Dear Paul, I hope this letter finds you well and I pray that the gods... I'm sorry. I pray that you are enjoying the favor of our God. Old habits die hard, Paul. Each and every day. However, I don't have much time, so I hope you won't mind me getting straight to the reason for me writing to you. A lot of things have happened since you left and went to Ephesus, and quite honestly, we're not exactly sure how to deal with some of the problems that we're experiencing. First of all, a number of our marriages are struggling quite a bit. In those marriages where both spouses are Christians, some of our men have continued to embrace The old ideas that our bodies are evil things and that truly spiritual people will abstain from the usual privileges of marriage. However, their women don't seem to agree and this is causing quite a bit of tension in the home. One couple has recently separated over the issue. They aren't divorced yet, but it does seem like they might be heading in that direction and I fear that a few other couples might want to follow suit. Do you have any wisdom from the Lord for us and these couples? We also have marriages where only one spouse is a Christian. Is the believing spouse free to divorce the unbelieving spouse and to remarry within the church? And what about our widows? Are they free to remarry? What about our engaged couples? Should they complete their vows at this time? And what about our unmarried people? Should we advise them to marry? I fear that some of them may fall into sin if they don't Get married soon. After all, Paul, you'll remember that our young people aren't exactly known for their self-control. Anyway, Paul, moving on. As Christians, exactly how much freedom do we have in social settings? Are we allowed to eat food that has been sacrificed to one of our former gods? Our unbelieving friends invite us over for dinner from time to time, and they set before us meat that has been offered in sacrifice. Some of us have eaten the meat, But others of us refuse to do so, believing it to be a sin. Still there are others. They refuse at first, but when they see some of the leading men among us eating, 
They assume that it must be okay. What should we do, Paul? And I didn't think this was the biggest, I, biggest deal, but apparently some people do. Some of our women have refused to cover their heads during the times of prayer. Is that a, is that a problem? And now, Paul, I think knowing you, these last three issues will probably seem like the worst. When we gather together for our community meals after the service, the wealthy members bring only enough food and drink for themselves. Some of our poor are completely left to fend for themselves, and on occasion, many of them have left hungry. It's a far cry from the Lord's Supper that we enjoyed together when you were here. And as if this were not bad enough, our services themselves have grown increasingly chaotic. We have all sorts of spiritual manifestations going on. Every week, we have people shouting out loud in some unknown tongue, sometimes all at once. When I ask some of them about it afterward, one speaks about this spirit being the source of the manifestation, and another speaks about that spirit. I can hardly tell the difference at times between our Christian gatherings and the sort of thing that we used to experience in our pagan temples. But honestly, not everyone is bothered by this. Some quite enjoy it. And so many seem eager to speak in tongues out loud in the assembly. But Paul, I think it's actually starting to divide the church. And personally, I find it embarrassing when I invite one of my friends to church and the usual suspects carry on with their antics. One of my friends actually walked right out in the middle of the service one week. He didn't even get to hear the sermon about Jesus. What do you think, Paul? Should we forbid this business of tongues in the assembly? I'm open to the idea that some of it may be genuine, but so much of it seems contrived or manufactured. How can we tell the difference? Finally, Paul, some of us are starting to say that there is no such thing as a literal resurrection from the dead. But for some reason, I seem to remember you making a big deal out of that when you were here. There will be a resurrection, right? Thanks, Paul. Oh, oh, yeah, two more things. How do we take up our collection for the saints in need, and when will we get to see you, Timothy, and Apollos again? That's all for now, Paul. We can't wait to see you again on this side of the sea. In the meantime, may the wisdom of the God, may the God of all wisdom and grace be with you always. Your friends, Crispus and Gaius. And then, one day, I suppose when he had a spare moment on his hand in between death threats for preaching in the city of Ephesus that Artemis was not a god and that Jesus was the only true god, a concerned pastor named Paul took all of these things in the written letter as well as some verbal reports he had received from Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, and some from Chloe's household. And he sat down and he penned the letter that you and I know today as 1 Corinthians. And by the time he got to what we now know today as chapter 12, he had this to say. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. 
And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another various kinds of tongues. To another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, there is, there is only one Spirit that has come from You into the world by which the church is, is brought into Your family. Um, and as there's only one Spirit, we realize there's only one church. We, we know that we are a small part of that universal church. And Father, there's a great deal of confusion that, that continues to exist around who the Holy Spirit is and, and how He shows Himself through Your people for the common good of all those gathered in their public gatherings. And, and we're, just, we're just asking that over the next four weeks, beginning today, You would help us all to come onto the same page. Father, You know the past experiences. You know the beliefs and the questions that we all bring into the room concerning this. And um, I do not feel adequate or capable of tying all that together and, and, and saying everything that should be said. And so I, I'm very dependent upon your spirit now. And I just ask that you would help me to emphasize from these three chapters and other places in 1 Corinthians, those things which would prove most beneficial for our church at this time. Everybody, if you agree with that, you can say, Amen. As I said just a moment ago in the prayer, there, there's quite a bit of confusion that, that continues to, uh, to exist around this subject of the Spirit and His gifts. And as we go into this four-week series, um, I, I'm going to give a little disclaimer. There's no way. There's no way I'm going to be able to answer all of the questions that you will have about this subject in four weeks. If you gave me ten times as many, I don't think I'd be able to capture every answer. However even though I might not be able to tell you everything you want to know about this, I think with God's help, we should be able to, to hear everything that He thinks we need to know the most. That's what happens when you, when you read the Bible. Paul fielded all these questions in this letter from the Corinthians, and then the Holy Spirit prompted Paul to respond with this letter, in which he lays out at least three whole chapters dealing with the Holy Spirit and His gifts and how the Holy Spirit shows Himself through Christians in their public gatherings for the common good of all those gathered at the time, whether those gathered are Christians or not. And so what I want to do today is simply to lay the foundation for the next three weeks. So if you were expecting some huge thing this morning, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but it's better to get that out at the front end, isn't it? All right, so nothing magical is going to happen, but we're just going to lay the foundation for the next three weeks and in order to do that, I want to do three things because I always want to do three things. I want us to take a look 
Number one, at the conclusion to Paul's remarks on the Spirit and his gifts. And we'll find that at the end of chapter 14. Second thing I want us to look at is the context for Paul's remarks on the Spirit and his gifts. We're actually going to take a piece of that from chapter 1. Some of it leading up to chapter 12 and then a part of it right at the end of what he has to say in chapter 15. And then finally, after the conclusion and the context of his remarks on the Spirit and his gifts, I want us to look at the very opening of Paul's remarks concerning the Spirit and his gifts in chapter 12, the portion that we just read. And we will not get past verse 3 this morning, if we even get that far. Are you all ready to do this with me? All right, let's, let's start with Paul's conclusion. Sometimes... I know that the sound of music thing says let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. When you read, you begin with, so you guys know it too. But we're going to start at the end really quick. Just because there, if you start at the end of Paul's thoughts, you, you quickly find yourself on the right track. You can see where all of his thinking is leading us. And remember that Paul is God's chosen representative at this time to speak on these things authoritatively. Which means we're not just listening to Paul, we're listening to God. This is what happens when you read the Bible. You're getting to hear God's voice through chosen human authors. All right, so let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 39 to 40. What are some of the things we need to keep in mind as we begin to explore together this, this thing of the Holy Spirit and the way that he shows himself through Christians, in their public gatherings, for the common good. And by public gatherings, I mean two or more. Chapter 14, verse 39. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Chris DeRocco, from this text, we see many things. This is how the Puritans used to talk. From this, from these two little verses, we see lots of things that are important. Number one, whatever Paul means by prophecy, we haven't defined it yet. Some of you have your own idea of what that means when you read it off the bat. But whatever Paul means by prophecy here, and throughout chapters 12 through 14, is a good thing. Now, am I making that up, or do I get it from the Bible? Verse 39, look with, look with me again at it. It says, so my brothers earnestly desire to what? Prophesy. There's no way the Apostle Paul is going to say earnestly desire to prophesy unless it is a good thing. There's no way God is going to inspire the Apostle Paul to tell the church, earnestly desire to prophesy unless it is a good thing. So what I want us to do as a church as we go through these four weeks is to, for the moment, place upon the shelf whatever experiences or thoughts or beliefs or questions we have about certain things And let us all agree at the front end to allow the Bible to define these terms for us. Not our past experiences and other things that we've seen. Let's let the Bible define prophecy for us. So that for us, it can once again be a good thing. You can shout it out when you know it. 
The second of the four things we learn from these two verses at the end of Paul's remarks concerning the Spirit and his gifts, not only is prophecy a good thing, but believe it or not, whatever Paul means by speaking in tongues, guess what? That's a good thing. Did I make that up or did I get that also from the very same passage of Scripture? You know by now that we got it from the Bible. Right? That's, that's our way here. So look at, look at chapter 14, verse 39 again. After saying, eagerly desire to prophesy, Paul says, and do not what? Forbid speaking in tongues. And if he expressly commands not to forbid speaking in tongues, speaking in tongues as he is thinking about it must be a good thing. Now, we've not yet defined it. We haven't talked about, as some of your questions have, have, uh, have made me aware of the fact you want to understand, we, we haven't defined whether or not this is only known human languages. We haven't defined whether or not it includes some of the, uh, the unintelligible-sounding syllables that, that some of you maybe have experienced. We haven't defined those things yet. All we know is this. The way Paul is thinking about it, it is a good thing, and we'll content ourselves with that for now because the third thing we want to take out of these two verses comes also from this very same thing. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. Now, why does Paul say that? There has to be somebody in the church who wants to forbid speaking in tongues. And some of us can hardly blame them, right? If what we mean by speaking in tongues is what some of us have experienced. And then others of you are right on board. You're like, yeah, Paul, how could anyone want to forbid speaking in tongues? Did you know that here at Redemption Hill, we have pretty much the whole range of beliefs and experience on these topics? Did you know that? So as we go through the series, I want to do my best not to find myself choosing sides. And I want, to, I want to do that because I want you guys to be careful to do that too. As we go through things you, you know, and you feel certain things, you're going to agree more strongly with some things than others. I just, I, just want, I just want you to be aware of the fact that there may be someone sitting right next to you that is having a hard time with something that you're saying amen to very loudly. And I just, I just want us all to be sensitive to that as we go through this because, again, we are one church and the real Corinthian problem We'll get to it in a minute, but is that some of this stuff was unnecessarily dividing the church. And that's one of the reasons Paul is writing what he's writing. And I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. And let's just finish up with this fourth thing here. Not only does Paul think prophecy and tongues are good things as he defines them here. Not only does he want to prevent people from forbidding the act of speaking in tongues. But watch this. In verse 40, he says, all things should be done decently and in order. Here's what that means. There is a way to express yourself spiritually under the influence, or some would use the term unction. There is a way to express yourself and the life of the Holy Spirit in you in the public gatherings of the church in a way that God considers to be indecent and out of order. If Paul says in verse 40, look at it again. 
I want everybody to at least, we should all be able to agree here. Because this is, this is just right off the page. Paul says in verse 40, all things should be done, what? Decently and in order. He can't say that and have it make sense unless it's possible to do these things indecently and out of order. Now, what I would submit to you is that in our experiences, collectively, if you were to search our experiences, our beliefs, our our understandings of these things at the present day, we would find many examples of things that have been indecent and out of order. And we would probably find many things that have been decent and in order. Over the next four weeks, we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would help help us to all understand these things in such a way that it, it purifies us and makes us a whole lot more like the church that Jesus deserves and that he wants to see us become. Can we agree to do that? I'm going to pray one more time, and then we're going to move from the conclusion to the context of Paul's remarks. Lord, again, we're dealing with sensitive things. I pray that this would be a benefit to us one more time and to your greater church at large. We're we're becoming aware of the fact that there are other people who listen to these messages. And so, again, I pray that you would help me for the rest of this message to be faithful to the text and sensitive sensitive to the, the real and felt needs of the people that you've gathered to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. After Paul, after we examined the conclusion of Paul's remarks, I want us to move to the context. And I, I want you to go back to chapter 1 in order for us to do this. Because it's here in chapter 1 that Paul begins to clue us into the, 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 the real reason and the real problem at Corinth, the real reason for him writing. In chapter 1, verse 10, after, after some genuine praise and, and great, great compliments about the grace of God that was evident in the Corinthians' lives, Paul says this, verse 10 of chapter 1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And now he begins to tell them, somebody from your church has come to me and they told on you. Do you know that this happens? Do you guys know this? This is one of the communities of the church. You know those communities we have that meet in homes throughout the week to discuss and to apply the sermon and to to help each other walk in love? See, this is going on in Chloe's house. Just like my community, my small community often meets in my home or in the home of Chris and Holly Scott, who are back with the kids today, there was a community that met in the home of Chloe. And it has been reported to Paul by some of Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now, this news got to Paul 250 miles east across the Aegean Sea. Don't, I don't say this to scare you, but more than likely, if something's going wrong in your home or in your community, it's, it's eventually going to get to one of us. I don't say that to scare you. That's actually a good thing because we can, we can hopefully come in and help. That's not a scary thing, but just, just in case it needs to be a scary thing, I thought I would mention it. For, <laughs> for it has been reported, as Solomon said, a bird of the air may carry this. You want to notice some things here. Paul is writing this whole letter to the Corinthian church because there's unnecessary division going on. One of the things unnecessarily dividing the Corinthian church 
is their differing opinions on the Spirit and His gifts. But there were many other things. Paul begins to address these things one by one. But even as you, even as you follow the rest of the book, and you see all of the problems going on at Corinth, none of those surface-level problems were the really big problem in the church. Yes, there was a guy who, uh, who had an inappropriate relationship with his stepmother. Yes, they were all suing each other in court. Yes, they were having food fights at communion and some people were getting drunk. Those things were all symptoms of the real problem. If you want to understand the real problem at Corinth and, by way of application, the real problem in our churches today, it's not all of those surface level things that we can read about in chapters 1 through 6 or 7 through 16. It's actually something that we begin to see in verse 13 of chapter 1. Paul says, here's the nature of the report I've gotten from some of your members. You're unnecessarily divided, and here's what I mean. What I mean is that one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that's Peter, or still others, I follow Christ. And here in verse 13, Paul asks some rhetorical questions that show us the real problem of Corinth. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? In essence, Paul says, why is, why is your church divided? Is Christ divided? Is he split into pieces such that one piece leads Paul in one direction and one piece leads Apollos in another direction? Don't we follow one and the same Christ? How is it then that you are divided if you truly follow me or Apollos or Peter? By the way, why are you making such a big deal out of us anyway? Was Paul crucified for you? Is this my church? Did I purchase you with my own blood? Were you baptized into my name? I mean, when I took you to the James River, did I baptize you into the kingdom of Robert Greene? Or did we baptize you into Jesus' kingdom? The real problem at Corinth is the real problem that persists in our churches today. The Corinthians had taken their eyes off of Jesus and what He had done to forgive their sins and to make them all a part of the same family of God. Something else had taken the place of first importance in their church. And you can see this even more clearly if you go to chapter 15, which I would like for you to do right now with your Bibles. Something else had taken the place of first importance in their church. And even as Paul concludes everything he has to say about these surface-level problems, all the way through what we will examine over the next three weeks in chapters 12 through 14 concerning the Spirit and His gifts, the Apostle Paul comes in chapter 15 and says, Now, brothers, right on the heels of that conclusion we just looked at, be eager to prophesy. 
Don't forbid speaking in tongues, but let all things be done decently in order. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. How does the church get to the place where their members are splitting themselves into groups based on who their favorite pastor is, where one member of the church is carrying on an improper relationship with his stepmother, where the other members are bragging about that, where one member takes another to court and sues him or her, where the marriages are in shambles and and nobody has the first word about what should take place, where their members are getting drunk during communion, where some members want to suppress certain legitimate manifestations of the Spirit, and where other members want the church to look like a spiritual gifts experiment gone bad. How does the church get to that place? Paul's answer is that the church has taken its eyes off of Jesus and the gospel. And therefore, his solution to that problem, his medicine, if you will, for their ailment, is to give them a gospel reminder Did you see that in in verse 1 of chapter 15? Now, brothers, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Is, Is Paul correct in doing this? Is this wise? Is this gospel strong enough to deal with those big problems? Because if it's not, then I would suggest to you Redemption Hill is not going to survive very long because this is what we keep doing. We're encountering problems and we keep giving people the gospel, Pastor Robert, Pastor Chris, if that doesn't work. We need a strategy. We need to pick up a book off the shelf that that can better instruct us. Or all of you are in trouble. Nor is it a small thing that right after discussing three chapters of material that people use to focus exclusively on the Spirit and what they consider to be the display of His power, that Paul comes right back to the real power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And and to separate these two is not a biblical thing. You don't simply lay one on top of the other. And we'll, we'll get into these things over the next few weeks. One grows out of the other. Redemption Hill, if you're listening, this is probably the most important thing for all of us to remember as we take some time to learn about the different ways the Holy Spirit shows Himself through us in our public gatherings. Compared to the gospel itself, this issue of the Spirit and His gifts and all these manifestations is a secondary issue. I want you to hear me when I say that. I'm not saying it's not important. And I know some of you feel that that's what I'm saying when I say it. That honestly is not what I'm saying. It is very important. If it were not, there's no way Paul would have taken up three chapters in a letter determined to address or written to address crises. If it were not vitally important, there's no way it would be discussed at this length in 1 Corinthians. It is important. I'm not saying anything to the contrary. Compared to the gospel itself, 
it is rightly viewed as a matter of secondary importance and therefore should never be, should never be allowed to compete with or displace Jesus and his work by which all of us are made Christians. It should never compete with or displace as the primary emphasis of any church the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I hope you can see why from the context of 1 Corinthians. Very well, having discussed the conclusion and the context of this letter and Paul's comments concerning the Spirit and His gifts, let's, let's take some time to look at the opening. The opening remarks of Paul in chapters 12, verses 1 to 3. And I want to very quickly walk through what Paul has to say here for our benefit. We will not get past the first three verses. So what I told you in the beginning is true. Paul, chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Chapter 8, verse 1, now about food offered to idols. Chapter 12, verse 1, now about spiritual gifts. Later, he'll go on in chapter 16 to say, now concerning the collection. But he comes to our our subject at hand in chapter 12, verse 1, and he begins using a word in the Greek, now concerning pneumaticos, spiritual gifts. Now, the, the word gifts really isn't there in the, in the Greek text. For those who are, who are unaware of this, the, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And Paul uses a word here that he actually uses of the Corinthians back in chapter 3. No, actually, he couldn't use it of the Corinthians back in chapter 3. Back in chapter 3, and you don't have to flip there, but he says now... Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, mere infants in Christ. The Corinthians thought they were extremely spiritually mature precisely because of the wonderful and sensational ways that the Holy Spirit was showing Himself through them in their gatherings. Yet what we learn as Christians is that it's one thing to have a whole lot of knowledge, It's another thing to have a whole lot of spiritual manifestations, but it is yet quite possibly another thing altogether to be spiritually mature. And the evidence of that is primarily in the way that we do these other things. If I bring my teaching gift before you with no sensitivity for the the real beliefs, thoughts, concerns, and questions you've brought into this room, as we'll see in later weeks, that, that amounts to very little, nothing, as a matter of fact. So what? I have a gift. You have a gift. Shania Twain would say that don't impress me much. I shouldn't know that song. <laughs> For a number of reasons. For those of you who can't see me, I'm black. <laughs> But this is the age of technology. Back in the spirit. The the Corinthians were mistaken. They were not spiritually mature. Paul was right. And now he begins to address them in chapter 12 and says, now concerning pneumaticos. Spiritual people, spiritual gifts, doesn't matter. Commentators are disputing this all the time and they use it as an excuse to write new books. 
The real emphasis is what we'll see in a minute as we get to verse 3. Now, brothers, concerning spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be uninformed. Can I agree with Paul and with the Bible here that it is possible to have a great deal of experience with spiritual gifts and the manifestations of the Holy Spirit and yet to be completely uninformed about them in one sense? It humbles people like us, doesn't it? What we're going to see from this point on in verse 2 of chapter 12 all the way to the end of chapter 14 is, is God's way of, watch this, and he thinks this is important, God's way of informing us about these things. Informing experienced people about things that they are still largely ignorant about because their experiences have not taught them truth. So we come to the Bible to learn that truth that we may not be able to mine out of our past experiences. Is that a fair statement? I'll go on even, even without your, your confirmation. Chapter, chapter 12, verse 2. You know, watch this. Here's something you, you aren't ignorant about. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand something. No one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. And now you hear, you're, you're, you're Christians now and you're trying to figure out what is this speaking we hear in our gatherings? Some of it we can't really understand. And Paul says, don't worry. If it's the Holy Spirit, you don't have to worry about what's being said, even if you can't understand it. No one speaking by the Holy Spirit says Jesus is a curse. And pay very close attention to this. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now obviously Paul does not mean that some stray person on the road can't put those three words together. Sometimes we put three words together and it never quite means exactly what it should. I love you. Jesus is Lord. Paul's not saying that you can't just string those three words together except in the Holy Spirit. He's talking about a real confession. And this word is something that means it is, it is your mouth speaking in agreement with your heart. Con means with or together. It is a confession, not simply a profession, something that comes forth, but a confession. Your mouth is speaking with your heart. This is why it is, it, you can say someone may be professing Christ without confessing Christ. Jesus is Lord. It's not something we can say except in the Holy Spirit. And it's really interesting 
that before he says anything else to directly address their other concerns with the Spirit and his manifestations, Jesus is Lord. That's the Holy Spirit. Paul goes back to something they all have in common. The confession that Jesus is Lord. And he says, before I talk to you about any other manifestation of the Holy Spirit, there is one that you are currently overlooking that I do not want you to overlook. And and I'm going to say that with Paul this morning. Redemption Hill, there is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit I do not want us to ever overlook as a church. The confession from the mouth speaking in agreement with the heart that Jesus is Lord. Do you know this confession yourself? Is this a confession you have made? Have you ever heard the story that we call the Gospel? The story of Jesus' life, His death, and His resurrection. And has the Holy Spirit of God ever taken that story all the way into your heart to the place where you were internally convinced that God created you for Himself? But that you, like everyone else, had participated in a rebellion against the God who had made you. Trying to oust Him from the control center of your life. And trying to put either yourself or someone else that you think is a little bit smarter in that position. Have you been convinced by the Holy Spirit of these things? Furthermore, has that Holy Spirit also convinced you that because God loved you so much, He did not leave you in the place of your rebellion and leave you in the place where the the judgment that you deserve for your rebellion, which by the way is death and separation from God eternally in a place that He created for the devil and the devil's angels called hell. It's a real place. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, the Gospel of John says, and of righteousness and of judgment. Have you ever heard the gospel and been convinced of these things? And have you also been convinced of the fact that in his love for us, not wanting to leave us in the place where we only got what our sins deserved, that God sent his one and only son Jesus into the world to take the place of sinners, both in life and in death. And that through his active obedience to God in life, Jesus displayed before God and earned for us the righteousness that each one of us needs to put before God in order to have any hope of escaping the judgment we deserve. And then have you also been convinced that in his, what some call his passive obedience on the cross, which I cannot bring myself to call passive obedience, that in his more active obedience that Jesus not only took our place in life but in death that he took willingly upon himself the judgment we deserved and that he went to the cross and shed his own blood for our sins 
dying in our place on that tree? Have you been convinced by the Holy Spirit that God accepted His blood as payment for your sins? Have you responded, not being only convinced, but being compelled by this Holy Spirit to confess that Jesus is not only the Lord, but your Lord? Or does your life give more evidence that you are still one of those actively participating in the rebellion against God? A room like this should really only be divided on that issue. On the basis of that issue. And we gladly welcome people who find themselves in both buckets. But we do not gladly watch you leave here without receiving Christ. If you are here this morning and you have never confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord out of agreement with your heart because you have been both convinced and compelled by the Holy Spirit, whom we will get to know a little bit better over the next three weeks. I invite you at this time, under the authority of God, to know that in His love for you, He has sent His Son Jesus to live and die in your place. And that forgiveness for you is at hand. You must reach and trust, trust Jesus just enough to give everything you understand about yourself to everything you understand about Him at this time. He knows how to save people like that. Let's pray, and after we do, I'll tell you what to expect next week. Heavenly Father, who is adequate for these things, even to speak about these things? We're, we're speaking about you. We're speaking about your son, Jesus. We're speaking about the Holy Spirit. We're used to speaking about people whose hands we have sh- shaken. We've, we've, we've met them. We've talked with them. We, we're speaking about you precisely because your Holy Spirit has entered us and has, has caused our mouths to speak about you with with truth that we learn from the Bible. And I'm just praying that over the next three weeks, you'd help to bring us all onto the same page concerning the Holy Spirit's work in the church, particularly how He manifests or shows Himself through us in our public gatherings. Amen.